education, diversity, opportunity. Who has the answers? How can we push this profession forward? How can we make a change? Friends and family, I'd like to welcome the one and only Dr. B to the podcast. This evening is going to get real. This evening is going to solve some problems. This evening, we have the one and only. Let's go. This is a Defocus Media production. What are your What's up, everyone? It's your favorite optometrist, Dr. Daryl Glover. And I'm Dr. Jennifer Lyerly, resident optometry nerd. And welcome to Defocus Media, optometry's number one podcast, where we discuss the hottest topics, latest technology, eyewear, practice management, and more. So sit back, relax, and defocus. What's up, what's up, everyone? It's your favorite optometrist, Dr. Daryl Glover. Super excited because I have another star in eye care, but this star is a little different. I mean, this guy has done so much for eye care, so much for academia, um, just so much for diversity, and just really has helped to push the profession forward. Friends and family, I'd like to welcome my guy, Dr. B. How are you doing today, my friend? Very good. Thank you, Darren. I don't know if I can live up to that introduction, but I appreciate it. <laughs> hey, man, I, I just want to thank you. You know, I've I've had the opportunity to hang around you quite a bit, right? Um, and really have, you know, amazing conversations and really get to know you better. You know, whether it's talking about fast cars, whether it's talking about good <laughs> bourbon, whether it's talking about traveling, whatever it may be. But the one thing that I love is just all the work that you do on the back end, right? The work that people don't really see, the, pe the work that people don't really know about, but you continue to shine and continue to push the profession forward. Um, so today I'm very excited to have you on the show. Uh, you know, before we get started, I always like to get to know who's in front of me or at least get my audience to know because I know a little bit about you. So if you don't mind, maybe just sharing where you're from, you know, how you got into optometry, you know that why, and maybe even a fun fact. We always love fun facts, right? So let's get this party started, my man. You got it. No, thank you. I'm happy to do that. So um, I grew up in, I grew up in South Florida. I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, so I'm a a warm weather guy for sure. Uh, we're living in Kentucky now, and this past week I've really felt that I'm a warm weather guy. It's really, really cold here, but it'll get better. It'll get better. But uh, having grown up in South Florida, uh, my dad was a mailman, and he walked a mail route every day. You can imagine in the South Florida temperatures, you know, walking 10, 11 miles a day every day. Yeah. The guy was just exhausted when he came home from work and just, you know, dripping with sweat because he worked so hard. Um, yeah. My mom uh, worked for an optometrist and she was the office manager and the optometrist she worked for was a really good friend of the family and he lived very near us. And I remember being about 10 years old and being in the yard with my brothers playing basketball and um, our dad would come home from work and he just, you know, as I said, just dehydrated and just beat up from all the hard work. And the optometrist who my mom worked for would drive past our house and he still looked sharp, right? He, he was still <laughs> smiling. He had a, a suit and tie on and yeah. he was driving a Jaguar. And I went, you know, I probably shouldn't follow my dad's footsteps. I should follow this optometrist. <laughs> <laughs> and, and literally, you know, that was that moment of clarity where I thought, this is what I'm going to do, you know, not, not to mention I was pretty nearsighted and so was the rest of the family. But, but seeing him in that, uh, that state of happiness after a full day of work, yeah. Um, you know, really made me think, you know, optometry's got something special. So that was probably really the impetus. Um, I don't know if that's a fun fact, but the fun fact for me probably is that um, I married my high school sweetheart. Um, 
my wife and I got married very young. In fact, she was 19 and I had turned 20 the month before we got married. So uh, 37, 38 years later, um, still the same wife doing really well. Um, wow. We have we have one kid. Our son is a firefighter paramedic on the west coast of Florida. Could not convince him to do optometry, even though I had a Jaguar. <laughs> him to uh, to go into optometry, but uh, optometry has been a, a lifelong love of mine. Uh, if you look at my high school yearbook, you know it says pre-optometry under my senior picture. So, um, oh wow, it's been my life, my whole you know my whole life, and uh, it's been really good to me, and uh, very very passionate about this profession still to this day. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, I want to, you know, continue to build on this world of optometry, right? Yeah. Um, clearly, it's part of your DNA. You saw it at an early age. It really um, was intriguing to you. And, you know, just that experience of seeing your dad come from home and then seeing that Jaguar go by and just <laughs> that state of happiness. I mean, that's a game changer, right? It really changes yeah. your mindset and how you look at things, right? right. Um, but I would really like to talk about, you know, how did you get into academia, right? Because... Uh, I know you were the dean at UPike, um, you know, the, the school out in Kentucky. But before that, you also were making a big splash. You were making a big change down at Nova. So kind of walk through, you know, what that process looked like, because there's a lot of optometrists out there, a lot of student optometrists out there and even new graduates that are thinking about academia. They're thinking yeah. about being a professor. They're thinking about being a dean but they don't really know the right path to go. So I'd love to get some insight from you on, you know, what triggered that and kind of walk us through what that journey looked like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I started my career in optometry in private practice. Um, I worked for an older optometrist for two years. And then I said to my wife, you know, I really want to be my own boss. And I think that rural optometry is really what I want to do because I want to do full scope. I, I was wanted to see, you know, what I used to call cradle to grave optometry. I don't know if that's the nicest way to say it, but I wanted to see everybody, you know, everything in between. Right. Uh, and I thought in a rural community that could allow me to do it. So um, I, I twisted her arm and convinced her that we should move to a really small town in Texas. And uh, we did. And I opened a practice cold in a town of about 4,000 people. And we did it for 10 years. And oh, it wow. was successful and, and we enjoyed it and did really, really well. But about, I don't know, maybe year six or seven, I was appointed to the TOA, the Texas Optometric Association Board of, Board of Directors. And in that role, um, I got asked by, or we got asked by the folks at the University of Houston College of Optometry to help go out on the road and recruit pre-optometry students to the profession. And I loved it. I would go to Texas A&M or University of Texas or Baylor or whatever, and I speak to the pre-optometry students and, and share with them my passion for this profession. And I got hooked. And, and I really thought, you know, this is what I want to do. So when the opportunity came to sell my practice, um, I did. And I went straight from there to the faculty at Nova. Um, my wife and I had both grown up in South Florida and we had been in Texas long enough. So we were happy to get back to South Florida. And I joined the faculty there. And I really absolutely never had my mind set on an administrative career. You know, I didn't see myself being a dean at that time, I really was very happy with my with my uh, teaching career. And I have to say that it is a really great way to practice optometry. You know, for those people who may be thinking about the profession of optometry, optometric education, 
really look at it because I always say it's one of the healthiest ways to practice optometry. Your week as an educator varies day to day. You know, one day you're teaching in a lab, the next day you're seeing patients, the next day you're giving a lecture, the next day you have time to do service and scholarship. And how unique is that? That, you know, throughout your week- Very widespread. It it changes, right? And I think that's healthy. I think people who do the same thing every day, five, six days a week, that's when there's a, a opportunity for burnout. So I think optometric education is really quite a great way to practice. There's some issues there, and we may talk about that later, you know, as far as salaries go and maybe being competitive in the market for optometric education. But I think health-wise and sort of rewarding-wise, optometry education is a great way to go. But I digress. So um, (laughs) I I started, uh, you know, I started on the faculty and I was about three years there. And the assistant dean for student affairs left. Um, he is the current president of Southern College of Optometry, Dr. Lou Reich, who's still a good friend of mine. Oh, yeah. Uh, but he had been the assistant dean at Nova and he left. And I got promoted to that role. So I was the assistant dean at Nova for um, about nine years. And wow. in that role, I ran admissions and student affairs and worked some in development and different things like that. And, uh, you know, really that's when I decided you know, this is something I can do. I can, I can do the people side of it. And I can, I think I can really make a contribution if the opportunity arose to be the dean of a new school or the dean of any school. But, you know, if you want to be a dean of an optometry school, there's only 23 or 24 jobs in the country for you. (laughs) Pretty limited, uh, you know, (laughs) opportunity pool there. So if something comes up, you got to look at it, right? I mean, I personally had never in my life thought about living in the state of Kentucky, but thankfully I took it seriously and and went and looked at the opportunity and realized this was a great fit for me for the, for that period of time in my life. So um, once again, went back to my wife and said, uh, <laughs> what do you think about moving to Kentucky? So, you know, God bless her. She, uh, she, she followed me around the country at different times in my career. Um, so we went, we went to Kentucky in 2018, and I uh, I semi retired in August. So um, it is it has been as you said, sort of a, a an interesting career, and uh, one that I find have found very very rewarding. And you know, even in this role, you know, as a semi retired person doing a little consulting now, um, optometry is still being good to me, and optometry yeah. is still something that gets me out of bed in the morning and makes me excited. So. Uh, I still think it's a wonderful profession. I love it. I love it. And um, again, thank you so much for all that you've done with optometry, right? You've really yeah. pushed the profession forward and you've added a lot of value. And now I understand why you've created so much value because you've seen all aspects of optometry. And, you know, one thing that I love that you mentioned is that you did 10 years private practice, right? You know, I'm curious to know how impactful was those 10 years of seeing patients and owning your own practice um, how impactful was that being a dean, right? How, how did you leverage that, right? Because yeah. I, I feel like sometimes there's a disconnect when you think about academia and you think about real life. Um, so I'm curious to know, how did that impact how you functioned daily and day out uh, whenever you were uh, being a dean? Well, you know, I think I think being a business owner of any sort really does make you have some uh, some thicker skin and some and some and some great qualities and skills that you develop along the way too. I mean, yeah. you sort of get it from both sides, the good and the bad. Um, but I think, you know, having on my own business and, and 
you know, having people responsible to me for their livelihood and their payroll on my staff, um, you know, it really makes you um, take things very seriously. And it makes you have a little bit more of a worldly view. You know, you think about yeah. how budgets impact people and how, you know, how caring for people and how giving people, you know, from your heart and, and warmth um, gets you forward. And, and you know, I think the, the the best bosses I've ever worked for in my life are ones who you felt cared, right? Yes. And, and that's the same thing I've always tried to portray as, as a leader, whether, you know, it was in my own practice or whether it was is, as a dean, is, you know, I want people to know that I care. Number one, I care about what I'm doing. And number two, I care about them yeah. um, because that is what motivates people. It's what gets people to um, to follow your vision. And and that, I think, were analogous skills. You know, I learned those skills in private practice, but was able to translate those into higher ed when the time came. So, yeah, I, I think it was great uh, experience. The other little piece is, you know, I practiced in such a small town that I became very passionate about rural optometry and the role of optometry in the healthcare community. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I had this, I had this great idea that I really wanted to get hospital privileges in this little town where I was in practice, and I had a plan. Like every time I saw a patient from one of the primary care doctors in town who were on staff at the hospital, I was going to write them a letter, and I was going to make sure they knew I was checking their diabetics and their plaquenil patients, and I was being really careful with their patients, so they knew, you know, I was taking care of their patients medically. Yeah. Well, probably six weeks into practice, the chief of staff of the hospital came in for an eye exam, which I gave him for free, of course. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I remember vividly, you know, we're sitting at the front desk and he's picking out some new glasses. And he said, you know, we really hate eye stuff when it comes into the hospital. Would you be willing to come and check on things if it came into the ER, if somebody got a metal in their eye or a splash? And I was like, yeah, of course, I'd be happy to do that. And he said, we'll have to get you hospital privileges, but we can do that on Tuesday. So <laughs> literally from six weeks on, I had hospital privileges um, the entire time I was in those 10 years of private practice. And it really made me see how important optometry was in the healthcare community. Absolutely. And my passion for rural optometry really felt full circle when I ended up being the dean at a rural college of optometry. And that's what we were doing in Kaiko too, is we were taking care of underserved patients in central Appalachia, and they really needed us. Yeah, you know, it all makes sense now, right? I always wonder, I said, how can you take a young man from Miami, right? <laughs> Beautiful Miami, right? And then go to, you know, rural Kentucky. Yeah. But now it makes sense, right? That's also a part of your DNA. That's the way that you practice. That's the place where you want to make an impact, right? right. And I right. think that's phenomenal, right? And I think your story is phenomenal. Um, you know, while I have you here on this call, I always get asked this question from students, you know, um, at Kaiko, at other optometry schools. Um, you know, what's your perspective on residencies, right? Um, because I know you've had this conversation with your students, right? Yeah. And um, I didn't do a residency. So I always tell them, you know, um, ask five different people, five that did it, five that didn't, right. figure out what to accommodate or uh, make sense for you. You want to teach, right. then you definitely want to jump into that world. But being that you are so strong in academia, I would love to get your perspective, especially for all the students and new graduates or just yeah. people in general that may be listening. Yeah, no, I, I haven't been asked that question a lot in my career. And, I, and I, I'll give you my sort of standard answer, but I'll put a spin yeah. on it. Okay. The standard answer is it's great. Um, absolutely time well spent. Um, the spin is this. 
I always say to students, it's kind of like the national board. When you finish it, your residency train the rest of your life. When you pass the national board the first time, you never have to see it again. So it's, <laughs> such, a, it's such an advantage to have done that residency early in your career yeah. so that the rest of your life, you're a residency trained OD. And I really think it opens and keeps keeps doors open that may not have been open to you without doing that residency. So, you know, you'll see now ads for people hiring optometrists from large ophthalmology groups, for example, and they'll say residency trained optometrists. You'll see schools who are advertising for young faculty. It'll say that we want a residency trained optometrist. So um, I think there's some doors that open for you and will remain open your entire career because you are residency trained. So, um, yeah, it's a little bit of a financial burden to do a residency right out of optometry school. But at least you're not paying in anymore. Right. You know, you've been paying in forty five thousand dollars a year in tuition for four years. And then the residency, you know, comes along and all of a sudden you're getting paid forty five thousand. So I think that's a ninety thousand dollar net gain. Right. Yeah. So it's not too bad. And I think once you have that under your belt, your salary is going to do really well. Awesome. So now all my students, I'm just going to refer them back to this podcast and tell them, listen to the answer of Dr. B. That will get you through life, right? Yes. Now, we're talking about residencies. I want to take a step back and talk about kind of almost pre-optometry and optometries, right? Uh, Optometry school or optometry students. Um, The landscape of optometry has changed, Dr. B. And um, I think you've seen that with the you know many years that you put in the game, right? Um, so what I would really like to spend some time on today is really just talking about the applicant pool. Yeah. Um, you know, what does that look like? How have you seen it change? Um, kind of guide this conversation, right? Because I'm I, I'm curious to just you know peel back the layers and see what you've experienced firsthand from Nova to Kaiko and where you think you know things are going to go. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, let let me just be honest up front. It it worries me. You know, the applicant Mm -hmm. pool worries me. If I was still in that role of doing admissions, um, it would be something that kept me up at night. Applicant pool is worrisome for me, for the health of our profession. Um, And and I'll just share with you a couple numbers, you know. So right now, um, there's 24 optometry schools going in the U.S., right? We had one open last year in Utah. So that added to us from 23 to 24. And this past year, the applicant to seat ratio was 1.3 to 1. So 1.3 applicants to every one available seat in the country. Well, right now we know that there are three optometry schools in the works. Um, Two that are moving pretty fast that have actually hired uh, faculty. We're talking about High Point University in North Carolina and Detroit Mercy in Michigan. But then there's a couple others that are sort of right just below that that may go forward. So in my, you know, in my heart, I think we're probably going to hit that one to one applicant to seat ratio in the next two years. And that's not a good thing for the profession of optometry. Um, We need to attract more brighter more diverse students to this profession by telling people the story. You know, why is this profession so great? Why is it something that you should consider as you consider any health career career? You know, I'm afraid when I talk to pre-optometry students, you know, they got excited about optometry from their optometrist. Right. That's, That's great. But a lot of people don't go to their OD, right? So there's a lot of students out there when they think of pre health, all they think of is medicine and dental. Yeah. 
but there's so many other great professions out there that are in the healthcare field that are impactful to patients that will help patients and really, you know, make a difference in patients' lives. So I think that, um, you know, it's important that we all get out there and sort of spread the word. So thinking back of how it's changed, um, about five years ago, um, ASCO, the Association of Schools and Colleges of Uptown Tree, really, you know, all the schools together, put their heads together and said, how are we going to address this? How are we going to, you know, try to move the needle and get the applicant pool to be more robust? And that was the term they used. And, um, and you know, we spent a lot of money. We threw money at the problem. And in fact, all the schools contributed um, over a million dollars a year for the past wow. five years to marketing campaigns. And you've seen, you know, futureidoc.org and you've yeah. seen the new, um, you know, the new experiential things they're doing from ASCO right now. And those things are great. And we did see a declining applicant pool from 2016, 2017 to 2018, where it leveled off, 2019 sort of flat. And then it's come up just a little bit since then. Not what they had hoped. You know, they had hoped with the marketing projections that we were going to double the size of the applicant pool with this effort. Oh, wow. But it didn't happen. You know, it grew slowly. But if you look at other health professions like pharmacy, for example, you know, they've had 10 and 11 percent drops year over year to their profession. And we haven't. So I have to think with my, you know, positive hope filled mind that, <laughs> that that's the money we spent. Because if yeah. we hadn't done it, maybe we'd be in the same position they are, where pharmacy schools are thinking about closing and they can't fill seats. Um, and we're not in that position yet. But it does worry me. Applicant pool, you know, worries me. And I think it is uh, important for all the ODs out there to try to inspire this next generation of ODs to, to follow in their footsteps. It bothers me, Daryl, and I'll be frank with you. It yeah. bothers me when I hear practicing ODs say, there's too many optometrists, there's too many optometry schools. And then the next post or the next sentence is, I can't find anyone to come work in my office. I've had right. an opening in my office for five years and I can't get anyone to move this town I'm practicing in. So it's sort of like optometry is saying two sides of the, of the same argument, right? They're saying we need more people to come and fill these open positions in my office, right. but I don't want more, more students or more schools. So we, we can't we can't have both ends is what I'm saying. You know, like you can't burn a candle on both ends or something like that. So um, I think that everyone should work because together, you know, practitioners, the AOA, ASCO, the Academy to try to drive talented, diverse yeah. young people to this profession, because it is a great profession. Let's let's fantastic. you and I are both smiling about it all these years later. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, um, I, I I hear you, man, and and I'm concerned as well. And you know, I, I I almost feel like sometimes, you know, false narratives are painted that we have enough ODs, and um, you know, being a part of my doctor and you know working with our recruiting team, um, there's a dire need. Um, there are yeah. not enough ODs that are out there. I did a podcast not too long ago with Dr. Richard Edlow, and he really got into the the guts of the numbers. And for those that are listening. Uh, to this live stream or listening to this on a podcast, um, go check that pack, that podcast out because there's a lot of great data out there to give you the facts, right? right? But I do feel like we need to be a little more educated as optometrists about the problem that's sitting in front of us, right? Um, because even when you look at ophthalmology, they're worse, right? Yep. 
And um, if they're worse, that's going to put a lot of pressure on our back. So we need to make sure that we have enough ODs to be able yeah. to handle what the future holds, right? You know, one, one time I had a conversation with uh, with Reed Foss from NVI. Oh, yeah. And, and he said to me personally, I don't know if you was supposed to broadcast this, but he said, I could hire every graduate in the country this year. Yeah. I was like, come on, that's one company. Can you imagine <laughs> what the need is really, you know, yeah. for, for ODs across the country if you added it all up? The, they are absolutely in demand. And, you know, the students that I watched graduate over the past uh, 20 years, they all had great opportunities and great yeah. jobs, and they're doing really well in their lives. You know, Facebook is a powerful thing, and you, you I see all of my former students living wonderful lives. And that feels really, really good. You know, I don't yeah. see them, you know, struggling to pay their student loans so much so that it impacts the quality of their life. They're really doing well. And maybe most importantly, they're providing great eye care, you know, they're absolutely. doing good things with their careers. So um, yeah, there is absolutely a need. We just have to get that top of the funnel, as we say in admissions, you know, get people excited about it to sort of filter into the profession. Yeah, and I agree. And I, I think you hit something, you nailed it on the head. And that's, um, you know, optometrists spreading more awareness about how fantastic this profession is, right? Yeah. Um, I've said this numerous times on the show that every kid that walks through my doors, I tell them about optometry, right? I right. tell them how great the profession is. I go in there with a big smile. I go in there cracking jokes. I go in there talking about my travel, me being a foodie. I figure out some kind of way to connect yeah. with that student that's in front of me. And then I tell them, guess what? I'm going to have the same conversation with you next year, right? And, you know, that's how you build more optometrists. You got to plant a seed, right? Because they may not make that jump the first time. But as long as you're having the conversation, as long as they know it's a good profession, that's what we need to do to push this profession forward. I mean, shout out to ASCO for doing some amazing things with the marketing campaigns and all that other jazz. But this is a team effort. We can't just put everything on their back. We, as a profession, have to come together and make that change in order to push that profession forward right. and get the best talent that's out there as well. That's right. I, I told you I failed trying to convince my son to become an optometrist, but I was successful in getting my niece to become an optometrist. See? There you go. There you go. Well, Just having those up. conversations go a long way, my friend. That's right. Uh, you know, I want to kind of circle back to something that you touched on outside of, you know, seeking that top talent. And you use something that's really near and dear to my heart. And that term was the word diversity, right? Um, I'd love for you to spend some time on diversity because, again, I know you behind the scenes and also in front. Uh, but some of the work you've done in the diversity space behind the scenes is unmatched. But how important is it to create more diversity in eye care? And what will that do for eye care? Yeah, well... I, I think it's, you know, one of the number one or number two problems always in the profession of optometry. Um, we should absolutely reflect our communities in, in whatever field we are in, but particularly in healthcare. When you're in healthcare and people are in high stress situations when they're coming to see you and in situations where they really have to buy into the importance of the treatment and the things you're taking care of them, they have to understand you. You know, I I have a lot of examples of this in my career, and I won't bore you with them, but but it is critical that a doctor reflects their community, and we are missing the boat in optometry. And when we look at the numbers, and only 4% of students who've taken the OAT in a year are African-American, 
we've got a problem, right? That is Big not the, that is not the ratio of applicants that we should be seeing, or, or people thinking about the profession. So, so you know, when I was at Nova and I was in charge of admissions, I have to credit Cheryl Reynolds, and I know you know Cheryl really oh, well. Oh yeah, shout out to Cheryl. She's you a rock know, star the, as well. Yeah, the year I took over in two thousand nine, I think it was eight or nine. Cheryl came to me and said, you better make sure we have some good diversity in this class because we're in South Florida and we are in a very diverse community and we better have a great diverse class. You know, I took that to heart and, um, you know, really took up her charge and did my very best to help meet that, that challenge that she gave me. And we did, you know, Nova had the most diverse entering class for year over year when I was in charge of the admissions program there. I'm really proud of that. Yeah. So when I got to Kentucky, you know, it's a different challenge. Oh, yeah. We live, we live in a very homogenous community in eastern Kentucky where most people have no experience of ever living, right? I mean, it's a right. small town in Appalachia. You've been to a visit us, I know. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tons of times. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know Pikeville. So, you know, it is, I, I really was bothered by that. How am I going to recruit diverse students to my college in eastern Kentucky? So, you know, we were talking about, you know, what barriers are there to entry into the profession and, and what barriers can we knock down? And, you know, some people have, have changed like the admission standards. In fact, you know, Indiana School of Optometry got rid of the OAT. Um, I'm not sure that's the best idea yet. Data will prove that in the next year or so. Yeah. But they were trying to knock down a barrier. So the barrier I said and thought about was, you know, the OAT costs 510 bucks. And, I kept hearing stories from students saying, you know, I went to the public library to get some reading materials, study materials for the OAT, and they handed me an MCAT book because they had nothing on optometry. So, you know, I thought, you know, financial barriers are one we can knock down. Those are yeah. ones we can take out. So thankfully, at the time at the University of Pikeville, one of my really good friends was the vice president of development. And I went to him and I said, you know, I have this idea. I really want to knock down the barrier of financial impact from the OAT to try to get some underrepresented students to come into the profession. And he said, let me get, let me have a minute and I'll think about this. And he came back and there's a local family in Eastern Kentucky who has in their heart to improve diversity in health professions. And they gave me $10,000 and they said, do it. See if you can figure this out. Um, so we did, and uh, I created a, a little committee, and we set up an application, and we started putting the word out that we would assist underrepresented students and first-in-college, because we had first-in-college students in Eastern Kentucky yeah. um, that also had financial need. Um, and we started paying for people to take the OAT, and I went back to them again because we burned through $10,000 like that. <laughs> and, uh, and then I went back to them again, and then I went to my brother, and I asked him for money, and, and a lot of people supported it, yeah. um, including in the last you know two years, my eye doctor. Um, yeah. You guys were the absolute very first uh, corporate contributors to the Kaiko OAT grant, which I'm very thankful for. But let me, let me just share with you a number or two, if you don't mind. Yeah, far away. Um, I had Dr. Ibaranke um, print out some numbers for me. So we have, the, to date, funded 65 students to take the OAT. 39 of those students were Black, 11 were Latinx, 8 were Asian, 5 white, and 1 Native American. Of those, 30 students are currently in optometry school. I'm so wow. proud of that. I mean, there wow. are 30 students that we paid for their OAT that are in optometry school. And 
only two are at the Kentucky College of Optometry. So there are seven at PCO. Okay. There are five at SUNY, three at UHCO, my alma mater, two at Berkeley, two at NECO, two at SCO in Memphis, two in Puerto Rico, one at ICO, one at Indiana, one at UAB, one at Nova, and one at Rosenberg in San Antonio. So I'm really proud of that. You know, here we were yeah. a little school in eastern Kentucky, but we drove um, – knocked down a barrier to allow 30 students to start optometry school in the last couple of years. And that makes me really proud because I, you know, it wasn't really just doing it for Kentucky. It was doing it for the profession of optometry. A hundred percent, man. And, and, and I, and I love to hear that and I love to see that. Right. And I want all my colleagues out there to, you know, pull out that checkbook. Yeah. It's money. Right. Because we got to keep this fun going. Right. right. Um, as you mentioned, my eye doctor donated and, um, you know, we we want to see a change in the profession. We want to grow the profession. So we invest heavily in the profession. Right. right. But I like to reach out to all my colleagues out there and do the same. And I like to reach Thank out you. to all the other organizations out there to do the same. You know, NVI, Warby Parker, uh, VSP. Where are you at? Let's make the magic happen. Johnson right. Johnson Vision, Alcon, Cooper Vision. I'm calling you all out because this is what we need <laughs> to push this profession forward, right? It does. Um, and it's such a simple thing. I mean, we're yeah. just taking out the spirit. And I should say one other thing about this grant. We pay for the OAT. We pay it directly to the ADA who administers it. And yeah. we drop ship those students a brand new set of OAT study guides. Nice. So we order them from Amazon. We have three that we've, you know, sort of vet, you know, vetted to make sure they were the best ones. And we drop ship those to the students right away and they can get started with good quality study materials so that when they go take the test, they can be successful on that test. So, yeah. So, um, so per student, me, how much is it per student essentially to get this package to them? $640. Gotcha. $640. We pay 130 for the books and 510 for the uh, administration of the OAT. So, since I left Kentucky and retired, uh, didn't leave the state, left the school, um, <laughs> Dr. Josephine Ibaranke is running this program for us and, you know, is more talented than I'll ever be and is, will do a fabulous job. So if anyone was interested in donating, uh, Josephine would love to hear from you and would be happy to connect you with the development office and make sure your gift is properly credited and and, uh, and taking care of properly. But Josephine's email is just her whole name, Josephine Ibaranke at upike.edu. And uh, we would love to have more contributions to the OET grant. I love it. I love it. And on behalf of Defocus Media, myself and Dr. Jennifer Lyerly, we want to, you know, donate at least $164, uh, $640, right? $640. To do one student, right? Awesome. So I will uh, contact her and I'll make sure that we send a check over that way so that we're doing our part as Defocus Media. And if we can do it, all my other colleagues out there can make that magic happen as well. So Josephine, you got a check coming to you, my friend. I can't wait <laughs> to see when I come back out to Pikeville as well. She'll be very, very happy to hear that from you. Thank you. Yeah, man. But, uh, you know, this is this has been an interesting conversation. I mean, number one, I've learned more about you. I thought I already knew everything, but there's always <laughs> more, I guess, to, to peel back, right? right. Uh, you know, when it comes to optometry schools, um, I know you mentioned there's a few coming, but, you know, yeah. where do we stand, man? I mean, like, like what, like what needs to change? Um, you know, what are we doing? Great. Uh, but where are the gaps at? Right. Because, um, you know, um, one gap that I hear from students is that 
um, there's not enough professors, right? right. Um, another gap that I hear is that there's issues with boards. And, um, you know, I'd love to maybe just, you know, pick your brain in regards to yeah. some of those topics, right? Yeah. Um, so I'd love to, to learn more. Well, I'll give you my top three. Um, you okay. know, number, number one we talked about, and that's applicant pool. So I won't belabor that one. Um, just remind everyone, you know, go to the go to the ASCO. Here's this packet from ASCO. It's the eye opener sessions. You go to yep. their website as a doctor, you sign up, and then you can really motivate the next generation of optometrists. So, so that I won't belabor again. We talked about that. The other okay. one you mentioned, and I think you hit the nail right on the head. It's it's faculty recruitment and retention of optometry faculty has become a challenge. And the challenge primarily, I would say, is due to academics not keeping pace with the market. So, you know, we would see faculty who've been in practice um, as educators for 10, 15 years. They would, you know, climb the ranks in, in higher education yeah. and they would have their salary grow when they grew in rank. You know, people go from like an instructor to an assistant professor, associate professor, full professor. But that's a long, tedious process. Um, you know, it sometimes takes about 15 years to get to full professor status. Wow. Um, and that's a long process. And they would become very disenfranchised and disheartened to hear that a student right out of optometry school was going to work at a commercial entity or, whatever, or wherever, and yeah. they were making the same salary as that 15-year experienced professor. So, yeah. so there's a problem in the higher ed part. We need to change the structure of optometric salaries to recruit and retain top talent because, you know, you have an amazing teacher. You don't want them to go and work, you know, someplace else just for extra money. You want them to continue to contribute. As right. I said, you know, I think, I think it's like that story or that, I don't know, Confucius said, or I don't know what it is. I'm not good with these things. But, you know, <laughs> like, teach them to fish and, you know, or give them a fish and they eat for a day. Teach them to fish, eat forever. Right. You know, if you are a great optometrist, you take care of a patient. That's wonderful. But if you're a great optometrist and you train 100 optometry students, it's multiplied. And so yeah. optometric education is really, really important. And it is, uh, it, it's got to keep up. We've got to change sort of the, the structure and the way contracts go in higher ed to make sure that we're keeping up with the with the market and the market yeah. is zoomed and education is kind of your main flat. So that is absolutely a, a challenge that can, will continue to persist as schools wrestle with how do they change their budgeting? How do they deal with this to try to retain this top talent? And it's going to be a challenge long time, um, a long term for the universities to deal with. You mentioned MBEO. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it, it, it is a problem. Uh, you know, the numbers came out about two weeks ago mm -hmm. for the 2023 graduating class. And uh, in particular, part one, which is the applied basic science test, the first time passage rate ranged from 19% at one school to 91% at one school and everything in between. But the national average was 67%. So on average, 67% of students passed part one for the first time they took it. That is dramatically different than any other health profession. Um, mm -hmm. I've actually just been back and studied the numbers on dental and osteopathic medicine. And year over year, 
they are 90, 91, 92% first time national passage rate year wow. over year. And optometry is at 67. Why is that? What's the difference? Well, I have my theories, um, but it is a problem because that is a test that we are giving ourselves. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And we shouldn't be our own worst enemy, you know, right. should be our right. own best advocate. Um, my suspicion is that part of the problem is the breadth of information that's being tested um, of the students. So, you know, optometry has probably evolved faster than any health profession in the past hundred years. I mean, what, 100 years ago, we were in jewelry stores fashioning wire around a little <laughs> lamp, right? And today we're, we're doing SLT. Um, right. That's pretty dramatic in 100 years. But I think that maybe the MBEO's matrix that they create with every topic under the sun hasn't kept up. They mm -hmm. are still testing our students on whether they have memorized an ophthalmic optics formula, maybe for like the thickness of a lens or the, or the cur base curve. Right. When in reality, I don't think that really impacts their day-to-day -day clinical practice, um, particularly not in contemporary optometry. What they really need to know is the latest interactions of uh, tish human tissue with laser light. Mm. And quite honestly, the MBEO is now testing both. So they're testing both ends of that scale, the right. very old stuff, and the latest, most contemporary stuff. And that breadth of, of content, number one, pushes the curriculum at all the optometry schools because we're like, oh, my gosh, we can't cut anything out and we have right. to keep adding stuff. You know, most every optometry school has given up all their summers. You know, everyone now goes year round because yeah. we have so much content to deliver that may be tested on by the NBEO. So I think we have a disconnect between what it really takes to practice contemporary optometry and what's being tested. And, you know, there's even a, a level beyond that. Is memorization the best thing to test? Right, right. So I think that's where, we, where we're having this, this fallback and this problem with, with the national boards. Um, and I can't solve it, but I think the profession as a whole could get together and, and solve that. But it is doesn't seem to be an appetite for that right now. And that's a little concerning. Gotcha. Gotcha. Man, yeah. this is straight uh, gems, straight great information, great discussion. Um, and I know folks are listening. And, um, you know, it's, it's all about change, right? You can't stay in the yeah. same place, right? And you can't right. take it all with you, right? So, you know, what can we do to really get the right content for this first board to really help transition our students into doctors, right? right. Um, because, you know, my greatest fear is that student that can't pass their first board and they take it X amount of times and they leave school and they have all this debt from going to school, but also for taking these boards and they never will practice a day in their life, right? Yeah. And let's and be honest, the there's some that's folks the that are out there. Yep. Right? That's the worst. That's the, that's a failure for the school. It's a failure for the students. It's a failure for the profession. Yeah. I think that is the worst case scenario you just described, Daryl. And I, I hate it. I hate that yeah. they're out there, you know, yeah. and they are out there. There are students who are in that scenario that have been unable to pass that national board exam and they've completed every other requirement for the profession. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I pray and I hope, and I'm going to continue to be hopeful that, you know, we will see that change. 
just simply because to your point earlier, we have an amazing profession, right? We have rock stars, all stars, you know, highly educated people in this profession that's going to make that change and make it happen sooner than later. I can just feel it in my soul, you know, and um, I can't wait to see that day come. Yeah, I'm and, not giving um, up on it. No, nah, not at all, man. This profession is too great, you know, and um, at, at some point in time, we'll reach that 90% as well, like some of these other healthcare disciplinaries that right. are out there. Right. Absolutely. We, that's where we should be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I normally have this segment at the end of the show that I call, um, you know, uh, when I retire my Ferrofter, right? Meaning when I retire from the eye care industry. Well, you've already done that. So I got to kind of reverse the question a little bit, right? Uh, you know, what has been the biggest impact personally that you felt that you have given to eye care? I'm curious to know because you've done so much, man, from top to bottom, from um, academia to private practice for rural optometry. You know, what is your personal biggest impact that you've created for the industry? I'm just curious to know. I, I, I don't know. Um, I hope I <laughs> hope that it's students and young faculty that I mentored along the way. You know, I one time was asked how many students I worked with, and I think the answer I gave was about 1,500 um, in my career. So, you know, if those students who I worked with, you know, got some little kernel of wisdom from me, that they're able to apply in their daily life and in their career. Um, I think that's the impact I had on the profession. Um, I always said that I wanted to teach students to avoid the mistakes I made. Yes. So if I've been able to contribute that and they have avoided some of the mistakes I made and been more successful than I ever was in my career, then that makes me really happy. And I think that's an impact that I could really be happy for, um, you know, and be proud of. I love it. I love it. Well, what we're going to do next, man, before we head out of here is we're going to do a little segment that I've done historically, and I'm bringing it back, and it's called um, I Gotta Have It. And essentially what this is, is 60 seconds of me asking you a question and you telling me which one you prefer. All right. Okay. What I'm going to do is get my Google timer up here, and I'm going to put it in <laughs> for 60 seconds. Just give me right. a moment here, right? And uh, we're going to get started. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. All right, here we go. New York or L.A.? New York. Essilor or Zeiss? Essilor. Lexington or Miami? <laughs> Lexington. All right. Daily's Total One or My Day? Daily's Total One. Shorts or jeans? Jeans. Maserati or Ferrari? <laughs> uh, Ferrari, although I've never owned one. <laughs> Dog or cat? Dog. Alaska or Saudi Arabia? Wow. Uh, Alaska. Summer or winter? Summer. Soccer or basketball? Basketball. Comedy or action film? Comedy, for sure. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Gucci or Prada? <laughs> uh, Gucci. All right. That is it, my <laughs> friend. So I feel like the world knows you a little bit more, right? They know the impact that you have made. They know um, a little bit about you. Uh, you know, one thing I'd like to end the show on is 
uh, number one, I, I want you to leave your contact information, you know, for those that may yes. be out there that want you to consult, you know, whether it's a school, whether it's a practice, whether, you know, someone outside of eye care that's looking, coming into the profession, um, you know, how can they get in contact with you, Dr. B? So um, two, two ways. One is just my email. Um, my email is uh, od at gmail.com. And then uh, I also have a website, a website for my consulting business, and it's mboptometric.com, mboptometric.com. But please feel free anytime, reach out to me. I'm always happy to hear from my colleagues in the field. Um, The work that I'm doing in consulting right now is primarily with schools. You know, there's um, some schools that have had some challenges with national board performance that, that I'm giving some uh, um, look at and trying to give them some guidance and advice on ways they may be able to improve. And then um, also some new, you know, newer schools that are in the founding stages and trying to figure out um, how to make sure they do everything exactly right through the accreditation process. But it's been really fun. Um, I don't want to work too hard. I don't want to work too much. Uh, <laughs> as I told you earlier, my commute from my uh, my apartment to my office is about 75 yards. So it's really, <laughs> it's really a nice, simple life, this uh, semi-retirement. And I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Now, I got one last question for you, my friend. Sure. Um, you know, I always like to ask you, what are you driving these days, right? Because I know at one point in time, you and your wife both had Maseratis, right? That's true. Uh, but then That's you true. switched out. So what, what are we driving? Especially yeah. if you only have to walk right across the street, essentially, to go to your office. <laughs> yeah, now, yeah right? usually Nikes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, I now have a, I, I, we, you know, we had to, I retired. So the income yeah. level changed, but yeah. uh, I have an Audi A5 Sportback. Uh, okay. Which, which I've enjoyed. It gets amazing gas mileage. And thankfully it's good in the snow, which we've had for the past four or five days. Right. Uh, so it's, right. it's worked out pretty well to have a little Audi. And what about your wife? What is she driving now? Still the Mozzie? No, no, we 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 are down to one car. We are oh, we're nice. like you know we're old retirees. You know? I love so, it, man. You get that car. true quality time, right? It's nothing wrong That's with right. that, but you still no, got that need for speed, baby. So I love it. <laughs> no, she had to trade in her Maserati too. All right, man. Well, hey, Doctor B, man, this has been fantastic. Again, I greatly appreciate you coming on the show. I really appreciate your transparency. Right? We we touched on some topics that are real sensitive. The eye care, right? But you were able to really have a candid conversation and help those that may not have, you know, uh, perspective of what's really cooking up in academia. Um, I really appreciate you taking the initiative to create more diversity in eye care. I really appreciate you creating that grant. And as I mentioned, Defocus Media will donate to that. And I want all my colleagues out there to do the same. Right. Uh, But again, thank you so much, Dr. B, for being on the show. Uh, Thanks for everyone that's tuning in. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. We're on all platforms, uh, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, whatever you can think of we're on. Also, we're on YouTube as well, so make sure you tap in. Thanks again. It's your favorite optometrist, Dr. Daryl Glover. Stay healthy, stay positive, stay blessed, and until next time, peace. All right, colleagues, and it's a wrap. Thank you dearly for hanging out with the Defocus Media team. We hope truly something resonated with you. And if it did, be sure to give us five stars and make sure you follow us on all social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, you named it. And our handle is at Defocus Media on all platforms. And until next time, 
be sure to keep it 2020 and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode